0: folks, good evening. Um, I'm glad to be standing up here uh, this evening rather than somewhere on the floor. Um, it's been an interesting week for me. Uh, I'm not used to being ill, and uh, the last time I was any, uh, had any long-term illness, I think, probably was when I was a teenager. And as Pamela will account this past week, I'm not a great patient. So um, we'll see how tonight goes. Uh, Christophe has said if Uh, He needs to take over. He'll come running up and do that. But we'll we'll work our way through these two chapters. I'm sorry I got to miss last week. If you were here, uh, Gareth telling us about the tabernacle and sharing about what uh, had been put down by God as to how the tabernacle should be and what its purpose was for. It's a fascinating thing, and I remember spending a week whenever I was about uh, 13 years of age at camp, looking at the tabernacle, and it's always intrigued me and made it something that I enjoy studying. So you've just come through that, as has Moses. And as Christoph has led us this evening, Moses is still on the mountain as we pick up Exodus 32, and that's key for us to remember. As I was thinking about these passages this week, and indeed, everything we've been thinking about over Exodus, I, I turned to the television, as you do, and decided to flick through YouTube to see some of the clips of the 1956 film, The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston, Yul Brunner, and the rest in that three-hour epic movie. What sparked that was what happened when Moses came down the mountain. I don't know what was going through your head as the story was read to us. I don't know if it was the image of that 1956 movie or whether you were envisaging it anew in your mind. But that scene of Moses coming down and throwing the tablets down on the ground, in the movie, he actually throws it at the idol and they split, uh, which is an interesting take on it. But the image and the anger of Moses coming down is actually one of the central things in this passage. So let's come and let's look at the person of Moses in this. And I'll explain a little bit later why Moses, maybe more so than God in this. The past 31 chapters have been very much about God's plan and God's purpose for his people. What has he been doing? He's been raising up Moses to lead. That's Moses' job. That's what God has been planning and preparing for him, to lead his people out of Egypt, across the Red Sea, and eventually into the Promised Land. God has been busy with the Egyptians sending the plagues and ensuring that their hearts would be softened so that people could be, his people could be released from slavery. They cross the Red Sea, that amazing moment where the waters part and the people pass on dry ground. And as the Egyptians follow and the people look behind, they are swallowed up and they are killed. And then God brings them to where they are now. And He meets with His people on the mountain and He gives them the law, the rule, the best way of life that we can ever imagine God would have for us. He's given the Israelites everything that they've needed. He has given them his best for them. And most of all, the most precious of all, he has shown them and taught them that they are his people and he is their God. But as we look at verses 1 to 6, that doesn't seem to match up. If God has been doing all this, if God has, if you like, been pouring out his heart for his people, Verses 1 to 6 really don't give us a good picture of that. Moses is on the mountain, and down below, here you have the people grumbling, complaining. Chapters earlier, they had appointed Moses as their mediator with God, the one who would go to God and bring back his message because they feared God. But they'd become an impatient people. Moses had gone up the mountain and hadn't come back quick enough for them to be able to hear what God was saying to them. Listen to the language that they use as they they turn to Aaron, and they say, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Can you hear the contempt in their voice? This fellow Moses? Moses? the one who has been their mediator, the one who has brought the message of God, the God whom they love and worship, the God who has claimed them as his own. They were treating him like the hired help. He hasn't done what we want quick enough, so let's go another way. And so they do. They want to create an image of God. So Aaron gets to work. He gets the people to give their gold, and he melts it and he casts an idol of a golden calf. It'll be important to remember that the passage says that it was Aaron who fashioned the idol. And once it has been done, the whole people announce that this is their image of the God who brought them out of Egypt. There are two things going on here in these first number of verses. We have to sort of look at the whole chapter to to get this the first thing we need to be remembering that or recognize that the people may not necessarily be rejecting Yahweh, the true god there's no word do we get that indication that they are actually rejecting him, but certainly they are rejecting the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. The image of a bull was very familiar to them. In Egypt, this would have been everywhere. In the ancient Near East, it was used by many different groups of people. The bull was seen as a a strong figure. And so what they would do, they would build this image. And it was anticipated that the presence of their deity, whoever their God was, would dwell above the strength of the bull the people have started on a path everything that has been leading up in the past three chapters they're doing a complete u-turn they were to worship God and God alone and not make any graven image what are they now doing they're not worshiping God alone they may not have rejected him but they're worshiping an idol rather than a true living God and as we'll see, they will offer sacrifices, and they will worship. But it is all very different from the image that we are given, that is given to Moses and accounted for us, that is given by God. They're doing a complete U-turn. Almost, It's almost a parallel universe for them as they decide what they want to worship and how they will worship it. God says to Moses in verses 7 to 8, they have become corrupt, They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol. So the people are becoming like every other nation. Do you remember earlier that they didn't want to become like any other nation? And now they have by putting up a false idol and a false image of a God that they would worship. So that's the people. The second thing is the person of Aaron and his actions. Aaron was made and put into a position where he would have the spiritual responsibility for the people. He would organize how this new community would worship God. He would spiritually guide them and he would expound on the teachings of God. Moses, when he comes back down the mountain, challenges Aaron in verses 21 to 24 and says, what have you done? And at first, Aaron pleads that Moses wouldn't be angry. And then as he recounts the story, he leaves that key piece of information out. I I passed it earlier in verse four. We read that Aaron fashioned the idol, but in verse 24, Aaron tells Moses that he uh, he threw the gold into the fire and miraculously out popped a golden calf. Amazing. In the space of a couple of days, how a story, or indeed how a neck, can be saved through telling lies. It is interesting that Moses doesn't react. Is it so far off the scale that Moses thinks to pot with this? I'm going to focus on the issues that are going on. The people are going around and are wild. Or does he actually accept? Okay, fair enough. I think, and I think we would all suggest that Moses turns his attention to the greater sin of the community and deals with the whole sin rather than just the individual things that have happened along the way. But either way, Aaron had not done what he was supposed to have done. He was supposed to lead the people. He had been given the laws and he'd eaten at that heavenly meal in chapter 24. And yet he gives in to the desires of the people. And who's the one? Who's the one that is witnessing all this and is feeling the absolute pressure of it? It's the one who's been appointed as mediator. It is Moses. He has been with God, and he is now back down and dealing with the people. The image that we have in this whole chapter is an image of disappointment. And it leads to that great conversation between God and Moses in verses 7 to 14. It's a conversation that begins the three messages of chapters 32 to 34. There's first of all rebellion, there's mediation, and then there's restoration. We're going to pick up restoration in chapter 34 after Easter. And we have seen in the story already the rebellion of the people. But our focus is the mediation. The mediator, what Moses is going to do on behalf of the people before God. See, whenever this conversation is going on, Moses is completely oblivious to the events that are happening down the mountain. But God informs Moses of all the goings-on and puts his anger towards the people Here we get to see the fullness of the anger of God. He says, that's it, I've had enough. Even his language in verse 7, no longer is it my people Israel, but he refers to them as your people and whom you brought up out of Egypt. Of course, God meaning Moses' people. It's as if God is washing his hands completely of this people that he did so much for. And why wouldn't he? Why wouldn't he? Throughout the story, God has been pouring his heart out for these people. He's been providing a way for them to be in a relationship with him. He recognizes that they're sinful, but yet he has constantly provided a way that they can be with him. It seems that God's called time. Enough is enough. And he's going to destroy the children of Israel. But he won't destroy Moses. And he suggests that he will build a new people through Moses. And now we get to see the braveness of Moses. Because Moses says, now God, hold on, wait a minute here. I don't accept what you're saying. From verses 11 to 14, Moses speaks on behalf of the people. He speaks as their mediator. He reminds God of his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, that he would be their God and that their people would be his people and the generations would number the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the ground. Moses also puts God's reputation into the argument by suggesting that the nations around the Egyptians, namely, will see God as a vindictive God who only brought the people out into the desert to kill them. Scripture doesn't give us a verbal response from God but it records that he relented from his anger. I recognize and I suggest that this conversation throws difficulties for us. We, as evangelicals, believe and affirm that God is sovereign and that God is mighty. But if Moses can change the mind of God, then that sovereignty washes away and what we're left with is a God who is mighty. I don't have the mind to explain this, and as I read some of the people who do, they suggest that we don't take this incident on its own. We have the whole of Scripture to get an image of God, but rather we look at the person of Moses in this interaction with God. This is a different Moses. This is a Moses who no longer is looking after himself, but a Moses, who is looking after and thinking of the people. He becomes a mediator for the good of the people. It's a stark contrast to what happened earlier when he, in Exodus 3 and 4 when Moses pleaded with God out of selfish ambition and selfish motives. Now he is learning to lead God's people by reminding God of his promises to them. His relationship with God has grown. He's getting to know God as best as he can, as a, as a human can. So God relents because Moses has become the true mediator that God had him be. So Moses goes down the mountain with the tablets of stone, and he meets the fuss that is going on below. Yes, they have rebelled, and they must and will be punished. Moses turns a a full 180 degrees in his thinking. Remember a minute ago, he was the one saying, God, don't be too harsh on these people. Let your anger rest. Rather, he is the one who now desires uh, anger or his anger desires to see punishment on the people. And so it happens. Thousands are killed as punishment for what they have done. And the following day, Moses goes back up the mountain to meet with God, to mediate again for the people. This time, he desires to atone for the sins of the people. He goes before God to offer himself. What he has in his mind is probably death itself, a sacrifice that would atone God and satisfy his wrath but God turns around and says to Moses, just go and lead. You're not going to be blotted out from the book. Those who have sinned will be, but as for you, go and lead my people. God will punish when the time is right. And so he does. And so we move on to Exodus 33. See, the news doesn't get any better as we move into the next chapter. It gets from bad to worse in many ways. Because God tells them to leave and start their journey to the promised land. But no longer will the angel be with them. Rather, it will be an angel. No longer will it be the chosen angel of God, but it will be an angel, whomever he chooses. And God will not go with them for the simple reason in case his anger should return and destroy them. The people are now grasping the severity of their sin and they respond by mourning. The only way that true repentance of sin can be. In verse 4 of chapter 33, when the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments, and any that they did have on, they took off. In the first few verses of this chapter, the people become a humbled people. They recognize their sin. They recognize what they've done against God. But what remains in this chapter is hope. And although chapter 34 will deal with the restoration of this relationship between God and his people, the next verses reveal the intimate relationship that God has with Moses. Let me read the passage for you in verses 7 to 11. Now Moses used to take a tent and pitch it outside the camp some distance away, calling it the tent of meeting. Anyone inquiring of the Lord would go to the tent of meeting outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people rose and stood at the entrances to their tents, watching Moses until he entered the tent. As Moses went into the tent, The pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the entrance while the Lord spoke with Moses. Whenever the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance to the tent, they all stood and worshipped, each at the entrance to his tent. The Lord would speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. Then Moses would return to the camp, but his young aide Joshua, son of Nun. Did not leave the tent i see two amazing things in this passage the first one as moses makes that very public journey to meet with the lord the people worshipped god the people would only worship if they knew god to be their god the events of chapter 32 have now come home to their hearts where they recognize their need of forgiveness, and so they worship. They worship so that the relationship can be restored, and they watch Moses, their mediator, go and speak on their behalf. We get the image of the repentant people who recognize that the God who saved them and brought them out of Egypt is to be worshipped. The second amazing thing, is how this event happens. The author records for us something so special and intimate that we can only imagine what it was like. God speaks to Moses face to face as a man speaks with his friend. This is the level of their relationship. God knows Moses inside and out, and Moses is beginning to get to know God. Can you imagine a relationship like that? From what we know about Scripture, we know that Moses most likely didn't see God. And later, at the end of Exodus 33, we'll see that. But what this is describing is the intimacy between God and Moses. This verse, time and time again, since I was of the age of knowing what it meant, only a few years ago, of coming across it again, has come back to me time and time again, and it sparked in my mind what a relationship of this nature is like. It also speaks to my heart of how far of a distance my relationship with God is, the distance that has to be covered But this is the hope, and the final section brings this hope. Again, Moses is before God in verse 12. And with great boldness, he asks to see the glory of God. And this is what God says. And the Lord said, "'I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, "'and I will proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence.'" and you will see my back, but my face must not be seen. What a picture. What an image. Moses has just been in the tent. He's asking for help and reassurance in leading the people. He wants God to show him the way, and Moses Moses pleads with God that his presence will go with the people. And for a second time, The Lord agrees with Moses and assures Moses that his presence will go with them. And the boldness of Moses now comes in this incident. Moses has been successful in his mediation and more. He has communed with God and his glory. And this is the hope. This is the hope of Exodus 32 and 33. The people... The people had turned their back on God. They weren't going to bother anymore. They thought they knew what was best and what was right, and they did it. Over the past 18 months, we have been looking and we've been thinking about idols and idolatry. We've come back to it time and time again in our studies whether it be in Corinthians or in Exodus, and we have shared together. We have helped each other get through our devotion to idols, but it struck me that as I was speaking and delivering any of those uh, talks, it struck me that I left out one key thing, because it may be fine for me to stand up and say, get it sorted, But whenever we look at the example of the people in Exodus, what did they do? They came back to God and they worshipped him. That has to be the way, always the way of coming back to God and worshipping him. He receives us. He loves us. Because we have a mediator. One who mediates on our behalf. And this is the great hope that we have. Jesus Christ, God's only Son, who was given as the one-time only sacrifice for all sin, so that we would know true acceptance by God. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21: God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And again, in Romans three twenty one to 26, but now a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Whatever our idols, however, We have turned from God because we don't think he's listening, because we don't think he cares. He cares. He listens. He is there when we need him. He is here now. This is all because of Jesus, the one who mediates on our behalf. No matter what our idols have been or are, no matter what we think of ourselves, God receives us through Jesus. This is our message and this is our story. Throughout history, it has been written and written again, but the ending is always the same. Through every personal life, the life of everyone who comes in faith, God restores us when we come to him and worship him as the sovereign God. Tonight we come before God. In a moment, we'll sing, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood. Tonight, will you come before God, trusting in Jesus? Will you acknowledge, will I acknowledge how great a sin I have because I have followed the way of my idols rather than the true way of God? Will you offer to Jesus these things so that you can know the love of God because this is our great hope? We mention it every Sunday evening. If we need to get back on course with God, if we need to know his love once again, we have a prayer ministry team who meet over here who will be happy to chat and pray with you and for you as you discover as you journey as you find where you are with God and as you set yourself to go forward with him can I urge you to go and to be prayed for I have known it this week the prayers of many for me have been a great encouragement and a great help they can be not because they're words of prayer, but rather because the one who hears is the one who acts, because he is the one who loves, and he is the one who has access and is given access to Jesus, or Jesus has given access to him as our mediator, so that our sins can be forgiven and we can be truly accepted. Let's pray. Father, you give us stories in the Old Testament that would make great movies. And some of them do, but help us to look past the story and help us to look to what you're teaching us and telling us. Father, again, we are confronted with idolatry in our lives we may not have statues that we put in place of you, but there are things. There are things that we do with our time. There are love, uh, loves and desires of things of this world rather than true love for the things of you. Help us not to be like the children of Israel in turning away from you because they became impatient. Rather, may we be like the humble people, the humble children of Israel as they worshipped you, as their mediator, spoke on their behalf. And thank you that we have one who is greater than Moses, one who is greater than any other, who intercedes and mediates on our behalf. May we know the truth of that and may we know the freedom of that as we seek you more and more each day. And we pray in his name and his name alone. Amen.